What's going on, world? This is Salifu, and I'm an editor at Hood Communist. Typically, on one of these episodes, things would kick off with a little bit of music, and you hear the typical monologue, probably Erica, telling you about how twice a month the editors of the blog get together to discuss current events, da-da-da-da-da. Well, this episode is a little different because about 10 minutes into our actual Telegram session last week, I realized that we weren't actually recording. But it would not be a good idea to just forget what was mentioned in those 10 minutes or so that we did not record because this week's episode is a very special episode. It's based on the Telegram chat that we had recently about NATO. And so to kick this episode off, I'm going to start by sort of repeating to you what you missed, which was a breakdown of what NATO actually is. So in order to understand what NATO is, I want you to just imagine the worst person that you know now imagine if that person made a solidarity club and the members of the club were the next worst people you knew that's nato okay so after world war ii former high-ranking nazis who orchestrated the holocaust as well as french british and american imperialists responsible for genocide in africa and asia came together and decided they needed a support group After being whooped to hell by the Soviet Union, these forces linked up with a mission to combat the Soviets who were out on a mission to create a new world order. This led to the creation of NATO. NATO stands for North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It is a criminal military structure whose only purpose is providing the military basis for the maintenance and extension of white power around the world. Keep in mind, NATO's goal was not to only combat the Soviets, but also to advance the growth of international finance capital, a.k.a. imperialism. NATO is a white supremacist capitalist organization comprised of 30 countries who are all committed to upholding colonialism either by virtue or by force. The scariest part about NATO as an organization is that it's like the family in your town that likes to jump people. 30 countries all bound to assist each other in war. 30 countries all bound to descend on your country if they ever decide it's your turn to get the smoke. During the Cold War alone, the U.S. directly helped stage or fund at least 70 coups or regime changes around the world. Following the illegal dismantling of the Soviet Union, there was an understanding that since it no longer existed, there would be no need for NATO to exist either. But here we are in 2022, and NATO has only gotten bigger and stronger. An alliance once only made of Belgium, Canada, Denmark, France, Iceland, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Norway, Portugal, the United Kingdom, and the United States. NATO has now grown, expanding eastward, including Greece and Turkey in 1952, West Germany in 1955, and from 1990, all of Germany, Spain in 1982, the Czech Republic, Hungary and Poland in 1999, Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania and Slovakia and Slovenia in 2004, Albania and Croatia in 2009, Montenegro in 2017 and North Macedonia in 2020. So as you can see, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization has not given up on its goal of pursuing and destroying Russia and on its path inching toward the east. It's taking many countries hostage, resulting in countless fatalities and overthrown governments. 
So this is the part in the session where I passed it to a Jammu who is going to talk to us about the countries and nations that have experienced the wrath of NATO and hopefully give you some understanding as to why Russia is doing everything it can to ensure that the organization does not continue to expand. Let's get into it. Most of those states that Salifu named in the latter part of his assessment were countries that were formerly in the Warsaw Pact, which when the Soviet Union existed was the was its military response to NATO, right? So I'm going to just say a few words about NATO's involvement in Africa, because like was just said, the purpose of NATO is to provide and ensure militarily that imperialism is upheld. And over the last several decades, you know, Africa has been, uh, even though that's this is not how we're conditioned to see it, a critical uh, part of the world in terms of who's going to own and control the resources on Earth. You know, Africa, of course, is central to that discussion. So if you want to know what NATO has done on the African continent in particular, um, we can go back. The, the organization of NATO was started in 1948, right? As early as 1960, NATO played a decisive role in helping destabilize the Congo. You know, the Congo was in the midst of independence. The National Congolese Movement, Patrice Lumumba, were moving. The then known as Kintaga, Katanga region of the Congo, which today is known as Kinshasa, it's the world's largest or our most prosperous area in the world for mineral resources, natural mineral resources, diamond, gold, uranium, coltan to make these devices work, all of those things are found in plentiful supply in Kinshasa. So the imperialists were certainly not willing to let Kinshasa or the Congo go. So when they engaged in this uh, frame-up to undermine the National Congolese Movement and Patrice Lumumba, NATO was the critical force that turned the United Nations troops, which were made up primarily of countries within NATO, against the National Congolese Movement. And that left um, the African, the few independent African nations like Ghana under Kwame Nkrumah, Guinea under Sekitore, uh, Mali under Mobito Kita, uh, that left them basically naked in terms of attempting to try to have some level of uh, some level of morality in how the situation was handled. And if you know the history, um, the imperialists got their way, and the National Congolese movement was undermined and the Congo went the way it's gone for the last uh, five decades. But none of that would have been able to happen without NATO's direct involvement in sabotaging the Congo. And if you go forward from that, six years later, the overthrow of Nkrumah's government in Ghana um, was certainly something that was backed by NATO, even though it was primarily a non-military action, there was always the potential of military force needing to be used to crush the forces who were trying to stop the CIA-backed coup attempt that was successful in Ghana. And then going forward to 1970, NATO played a decisive role in backing Portugal's invasion of Guinea in November of 1970. And the reason why Portugal invaded Guinea in 1970 is that the Democratic Party of Guinea and Secretary at that time were one of the most, uh, the safest places in the world for African liberation movements. And the African Party for the Independence of Guinea-Bissau, 
founded by Emilcar Cabral, was based in Guinea at that time and was receiving training and was using Guinea um, at the permission of the Democratic Party of Guinea as a launching base into its liberation war to remove Portugal from its colonizing position in Guinea-Bissau. And so NATO backed Portugal in that invasion. They actually were the ones that approved it because they wanted to get rid of the Democratic Party of Guinea, the African Party for the Independence of Guinea-Bissau, and any African in Guinea who was dedicated to liberation. And that's why Kwame Nkrumah's residence, because at that time he was the co-president of Guinea, was bombed. Even though he was not there, he had been evacuated. His residence, uh, Villa Sealy, was bombed at the instructions of the NATO high command. And then if you go forward to, um, you know, all of the events that occurred in Africa throughout the 80s and 90s, the the, uh, proliferation of Zionist activities throughout Africa, which, you know, we've talked about a lot in these sessions, all of that was undersigned, supported, and carried out by NATO forces. And then I'll just say lastly, the complete devastation of Libya in 2011 was done specifically under the auspices of NATO because what happened in Libya is the effort was to undermine the Libyan Arab Jamahiriya, the government of Muammar Gaddafi, and to do that in a way that exercised the strategy that was used in Nicaragua in the 90s of bombing the people into Poverty, not poverty, bombing the people into starvation to the point where the people would say, we want a different government just so they could get something to eat because you'd have these sanctions and these daily bombings. So that was the strategy they used to undermine the Sandinistas in Nicaragua in in the 90s. And so they employed the same tactic in Libya in 2011. All of the countries that Salifu mentioned engaged in daily bombings of Libya. They took turns. Today it was Britain's turn, tomorrow the U.S., the day after that it was France, all those other imperialist countries, and they bombed the country into submission so that at a certain point people just wanted the bombing to stop. And if it meant getting rid of Muammar Gaddafi, then that was what it meant. And people were saying they wanted that to happen even though they had received free health care under the Libyan Jamahiriya. They had received free education under the Libyan Jamahiriya. The Jamahiriya had built the great man-made lake in the Sahara Desert, which made potable water for millions of residents who live in and around the Sahara Desert, an impossible feat before it was accomplished. NATO planes bombed those ducks and those dams into submission so that that water facility no longer exists today, you all. And our people all throughout the Sahara Desert are back to not having clean, fresh, healthy water to drink and use, specifically because of NATO's bombing in those areas. And, of course, they were able to use drone technology and satellite technology to actually locate Muammar Gaddafi, who was in traveling through the underground drains. And when they found him, NATO bombs bombed him into submission, bombed him to where they had to come out, where they were captured by the reactionaries, and he was killed publicly on international television, a barbaric act. So without question, if you study, you can study NATO's work all over the world, but if you look at it specifically in Africa, and there are many more examples just in the five that I've given, 
then you can see clearly that the role of NATO has always been and always will be the military subjugation of the world for imperialism at all costs to the rest of us. Thank you, Ajamu. Uh, I see that Kayla has their hand. So before we move to, oh yeah, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna let Kayla speak. One second. And then to speak, you just uh, hold down the microphone. Oh, thank you. I wasn't gonna get that on my own. Um, but yeah, now that everyone, you know, all the speakers before have mentioned what NATO has done and the crime that it has committed against Black and Brown people throughout the world. I want to tackle the question that a lot of Ukrainians that I'm seeing right now are saying, well, we are a sovereign nation. We have the right to join NATO. But after we've all heard what NATO has done in the world, what this really translates to me is that the state of Ukraine and the Ukrainian nationalists want to have the right to plunder the world together with the West. Ukraine has long been isolated from the West, being you know, part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the Russian Empire. And you know, they've been outside of the idea of being European. When I went there they, in 2019, they didn't even consider themselves European, although, of course, we would. Um, but because of that, they, they, they strive. Instead of standing solidarity with all the oppressed peoples of the world, like we are, they have been striving to go towards the west to be engaged in plundering the world with the west and so to me this is this begs the question who has the right you know ukraine as a sovereign nation okay and who has the right as a sovereign nation to invade and to steal from and attack other sovereign nations because that's what it really comes down to at this point russia's hard line has always been ukraine cannot join nato that was part of the budapest memorandum that was agreed upon in 1994 that they want to have the right to now rip up Despite this agreement, they want to rip it up. And now we're all supposed to stand in solidarity with a, a, a government whose fascists are empowered. And that's what happened in 2014. The fascists took power in Ukraine, backed by the United States, backed by the EU, gave them money. And now they're you know, doing the bid, doing the bidding of the West by engaging in war with Russia, starting this war. They've been begging for it. They've been asking for it, the Nazis. And really, they're holding the Ukrainian people hostage against all of us and so you know to see all this media this war propaganda on our news telling us asking us to go fight for ukraine to go stand in solidarity with ukraine when ukraine's leaders you know they look look at how they look at the russian people their own you know people they're slavic people the majority of russia is slavic look at how they look at russian people who are part of their same ethnic group they call them vermin they call them barbarians what do they think about the rest of us? You know, they don't think too highly of us either. Why should we stand in solidarity with the fascist regime that is wants to aid in the plundering of our countries and subjugate our people? It makes no sense for us to stand against them. And so, you know, ultimately, we don't like war. We we know that war ends in the lives of millions of civilians, but at the same time, this is a war against a state that has been fascist for the past eight years that has been controlled by neo-nazis and so i you know ultimately what i want to get at is what are the reasons what are the causes that ukraine what this you know war in general is because of nato and that is why as long as nato exists it will be a threat to humanity and to people everywhere nato for lasting and real peace nato needs to fall the western hegemony needs to fall thank you 
Thank you so much, Kayla. That's actually perfect because now I want to bring Onye up a little bit to ex I want to bring Onye up to expand a little bit more on um the suppression in mainstream uh US media of the actual reality of the presence of Nazis in Ukraine. Well, thanks, y'all. And thank you so much, Kayla, for bringing up the fact that Ukraine is far from a sovereign nation. That is the discourse that is being pushed upon us from the Western mainstream media. But what they are not telling you is exactly as Kayla said, in 2014, a democratically elected president, Yakonovich, was overthrown in a Western-backed coup that was led by militant neo-Nazis and far-right fascists. The U.S. knew who these people were, they knew what they believed, and they still backed them against Yakonovich because this man was democratically elected. He came from the eastern part of Ukraine. He had a working class background and he wanted to normalize relations with Russia. He also wanted to build stronger economic ties between Ukraine and Russia. And so that is the reason why the United States and the European Union thought he had to go. So after a number of unpopular economic policies and when Yakonovich became more overt about wanting to build stronger ties with Russia, we see the emergence of a popular movement uh, protesting uh, these economic issues. Within that movement, particularly in the Western part of Ukraine, there were organizations like the right sector, organizations like the uh, Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists. What these organizations are, also far-right neo-Nazi militias, what these organizations are, are xenophobic, extremely anti-Russian, extremely anti-Semitic, and also rooted in a decades-long history of far-right fascism in Ukrainian politics. The Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, for example, was founded during World War II by a man named Stefan Bandera, who was a straight-up Nazi collaborator. And when I say Nazi collaborator, I don't mean that he was like ideologically aligned but didn't do anything. No, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists was responsible for the killings of tens of thousands of Jewish people, of Russian people, of communists and leftists. They engaged in Nazi programs. They engaged in mass killings. This is the foundation of this organization. That's who Stefan Bandera is, a virulent anti-Semite aligned with the Nazis. And so when you see people pushing these figures as benign in the modern Ukrainian state, you have to remember that history. And the way those politics became mainstream again is that the Nazis, there was a popular movement, people were largely protesting, but these far right political organizations were willing to use overwhelming violence. They brought Molotov cocktails, weapons, guns to protests that had been peaceful and were able to, to take a decisive position of leadership. The United Snakes saw that, they saw their chance to get this leader out, Yakonovich, who wanted to align more with Russia and put in their own guy. And so they deliberately backed the neo-Nazis and the fascists. And again, they knew who they were because these organizations have a decades long history that the US was aware of. So eventually they were able to force Yakonovich out um, through the overwhelming violence um, in, a, in an unconstitutional move. Um, in Ukrainian law, I believe three quarters of the legislature has to agree to impeach a president. Um, they did not reach that number, but they still pushed Yakonovich out. And the people that took power were hand-picked by the United States. And there's receipts for all the things I'm saying. As a matter of fact, Victoria Newland, who was working in the U.S. Embassy to Ukraine, was captured 
in recorded audio in a conversation with the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, where she straight up names the person who would go into office after Yukonovich was pushed out. And you can still find this audio on YouTube. So these people knew these were Nazis, saw their chance to get at a pro-Russian leader and put in place a leader that would be willing to align with the West, would be willing to open up uh, Ukraine's economy uh, to privatization, would be willing to align with the IMF and put in place structural adjustment programs. And so the U.S. chose to work with and empower Nazis in order to allow that to happen. The other thing I want to say about Yukonovich is that he was actually overthrown twice. He was actually pushed out twice by the United States again for the crime, so-called crime, of wanting to have closer ties with Russia. Ukraine's direct neighbor. Like, why wouldn't they have closer ties with Russia? Um, so <laughs> once in 2004, uh, a U.S.-backed leader was put in place with Yukonovich, even though Yukonovich won the election. And then again in 2014, he was overthrown in this violent coup in which uh, neo-Nazis and fascists had the leading role. And so now in modern-day Ukraine, oftentimes you'll hear, well, you know, maybe there were some fascists in 2014, uh, so on and so forth. But the, the modern leader of Ukraine, Zelensky, is Jewish. So how can he be a fascist, right? Uh, Zelensky is an opportunist. And also, Zelensky doesn't really have any real political power within the Ukrainian state. The far right still does. Zelensky was actually the star of a television program where he played the Ukrainian president. Uh, he had a, was a leader of a party called like the Serve the People Party. He decided to run for office in Ukraine, run for the president of Ukraine, and form the same party. He ran on a platform of normalizing relations with Russia. That's why he won. But as soon as he got in and attempted to do that, the far right, which is still a significant political force, they had leadership positions in the police, leadership positions in the military, leadership positions in local and regional political offices, including mayor's offices. So they still had significant political power. And so as soon as Zelensky was like, Let's normalize with Russia. They were immediately like, we'll get your ass out too. They had already overthrown Yukonovich in 2014. So it was known they could do it. They had been empowered and armed, in fact, by Western powers and got key positions within the post-coup government. And so it was clear that they could get him out if they wanted to. And so Zelensky, even if he's not ideologically aligned with the far right in Ukraine, does not actually have the power to oppose them very important to understand, which is why you can find interviews where Jewish man uh, Zelensky, who had relatives who were killed in the Holocaust, is heard praising Stefan Bandera because he has to, because in the post-coup, the post-CIA-backed coup environment of Ukraine, Stefan Bandera, Nazi collaborator, is a national hero. And so if you're in any kind of political position in Ukraine, you have to toe that line. You have to toe that line. And the last thing I want to say is that there's been a lot of um, uh, uh, discourse uh, about the Azov Battalion, which is an openly neo-Nazi uh, military regiment within the Ukrainian National Guard. They are official regiment of the Ukrainian National Guard. Before they were an official regiment of the Ukrainian National Guard, they were one of the neo-Nazi street gangs engaged in acts of terrorism during the protest against Yukonovich. So they are a legitimized force. They are, have been armed and trained by Western powers. You can find articles about Canadian military leaders, US military leaders, British military leaders, Israeli military leaders um, arming and training this openly neo-Nazi Azov battalion. 
Um, they have been deployed to the eastern part of Ukraine, the Russian-speaking part of Ukraine, uh, to, in, to engage in atrocities against civilians. Because after the 2014 fascist government came to power, the southeastern parts of Ukraine and the Donbas and Crimea were like, we are not going to unite with this fascist government. We want to align with Russia. They tried to do it peacefully through referendums. The Ukrainian government refused to, to recognize it. And instead, they sent in these Nazis, these fascists, to attack civilians. And this has been happening for eight years. Tens of thousands of people have died at the hands of these Western-backed and armed neo-Nazi and fascist forces. And so now, all of a sudden, when the US decided that they want to be in the mix and using Ukraine to attack Russia, all of a sudden it's pay for Ukraine. But for the last eight years, tens of thousands of people have been dying in Eastern Ukraine at the hands of these Nazis. So I'll stop it right there so we can get deeper into it in the Q&A. Thank you, Onye. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And so um, last from the editors, I want to bring up Erica to talk, talk to us about why it's important for us to be ideologically clear as fuck when it comes to where we stand um, on this issue. Because like I mentioned, as we were beginning, uh, U.S. media is cooking up all kinds of distraction and, uh, and, and deploying all kind of moralistic arguments, as they always tend to do when um, world when global conflicts arise. Um, there's a lot of information out there to confuse you and get you thinking and talking about things that are not relevant to a position that you can take as a person living in the global north. So take it away, Erica. Thank you, and I appreciate um, all the context that was given, especially um, around NATO. Um, there's a lot of confusion, primarily because I think that people are trying to get into the weeds. Um, I know we talked about dialectical, dialectical materialism before, but I think it's very important that people not um, do these binary, you know, uh, good versus bad, or take into those positions. Um, but then one thing that's really like popping up primarily is like, is Russia imperialist, right? Because we're supposed to be anti-imperialist. So what position should we take? So we're often hearing online now that this is an inter-imperialist war or a war between two imperial powers in regards to the NATO alliance and Russia today. <clears throat> so leaning on Lenin, imperialism is defined as the highest state of development of capitalism. So under imperialism, each major power carves out their niche in the world to exploit while maintaining the need to expand and expand and expand. So this means worldwide exploitation and oppression of non-imperialist nations like the third world. So while on one hand, Russia is woven into global value chains as labor reservoir and commodity supplier, um, as a capitalist nation, they are not imperialists. And we need to really understand that because they are neither secure in a core position in the international division of labor, nor particularly help other states do so. And there's an article entitled, Is Russia Imperialist? And the writer says, quote, Russia can be ranked as one of the world's most powerful states only based on its military strength. Economically, it shares the characteristics of, of a not advanced capitalist state, but of one of the capitalist semi-periphery. So it plays very little part in the quintessential imperialist activity, 
which is the export of capital to the periphery and the extraction of profit from developing countries, labor and resources. So Russia's finance capital is small. Its imports primarily, predominantly raw materials. It's industry weak, it's multinational corporations minor, it's economy plagued by low labor productivity, end quote. So, the, so despite what's being said, Russia is not a player in the dominance of monopolies and finance capital, nor does it export or, uh, excuse me, nor does it, um, nor does the export of capital play any important role. And that is the difference see also with China. So now we have that understanding and the contradictions around imperialism, which of course is the primary contradiction. That is what should be confronted by Africans, particularly Africans on the left in the US, as organizers, as revolutionaries. And Salifu and I, um, we may mention in our co-written piece, Biden-Harris administration and the never ending commitment to war um, we say that, you know, the reemergence of the left-wing governments in the global south as, as they grow in a relatively poor countries in Central Latin America and the Caribbean region, establishing socialist countries and democratic structures that provide housing, healthcare, and education, it has become more of a necessity for the U.S. to thwart those efforts. So... As those nations turn away from the U.S. and begin to form multipolar alliances with China and Russia, the more emboldened NATO forces feel and their need to respond. So we are seeing the response. So whatever the reason the U.S. is proclaiming um, in order to intervene through NATO in this conflict in Ukraine, it is, it, it is Africans in the U.S. whose child tax credits ended up, um, you know, in Dubas so they can continue to be shelled. And the sanctions against Russia will not only impact Russia, but they will also impact countries like Cuba and Nicaragua and Venezuela as intended. <clears throat> and the American Competes Act that was recently passed in the House is attempting to ensure that we will re be repeating all of this as the US tightens its grip with the Build Back Better funds to go towards antagonizing China with Taiwan. So what anti-imperialists should be doing is understanding, while we are familiar with the line, no investigation, no right to speak, that familiar, that being familiar with that has not translated to, into any sort of practice. So instead, people are like rushing to make a statement, rushing to have opinions, um, making sure to invoke both sides are bad, to impede liberals while leaning criticisms particularly heavily to Russia. Um, we need to be telling our people the truth. So it is imperative that we are building relationships between one another and revolutionary organizations inside and outside of the core to help us have clearer understanding because imperialism is the primary contradiction here. And ending NATO needs to be of the utmost importance. So I'll leave it there. Josh, Mike, thank you. Thank you. All right. So um, we got 
uh, we got one or two questions that we want to ask to everybody here in general. But before we move to those questions, uh, I can open up the floor for general comments um, or questions. So uh, just raise your hand and um, I'll give you like the permission to speak and then you can unmute your mic. All right, Queen Kier, it's on you. Um, so I just want to quickly add, uh, adding on to just how Ukraine is more aligned with um, like neo-Nazis and fascism. Um, there was Africans in Ukraine that were in um, Lviv and they were saying that they were being uh, left to be the last people on the buses out of the city. So the uh, they allowed you know children, women, white men, and then Africans were last, and they were holding them up at the Ukraine-Poland border, and um, police were not allowing them to cross and keeping them there, and a lot of them were stranded in the cold for two days. So uh, even within Ukraine, it's you know I can't stand with them because they are not treating our people with respect or humanity or anything of that nature. But that's all yeah, I want to share. Thank you, and I think that's I think that's more than fair, Queen Kier. Uh, Jamila, I'm 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 allowing you. Uh, you can unmute and go. Jamila, sorry. <laughs> this is interesting. I've been having conversations about this a lot in uh, particular circles, but I actually had a therapy session today. And I'm a person, if I don't know you that well, I don't really open up. And she asked me, well, what do you, what do you think you like to do? And I said, you know, write, reading, whatever. And, uh, and she tried to dig in a little bit more. And this is our first real session. And I said, actually, I'm just going to be very honest with you. I'm an anti-capitalist and an organizer. And I began talking about how this country is trash, the NATO involvement in Libya, in Ukraine, et cetera. And she was actually pretty receptive to it. So I think just in my experience, I don't know this if this is everyone's experience, but in talking about this, I feel like because of the lack of knowledge that exists, when you actually do have some knowledge, people tend to be receptive to it. So I think we should definitely be consistent in this and gain as much information as possible be honest about it, be open about it, and uh, know there is another side that's not being reported. So I just wanted to share that. I think your, your volume got a little low at the end, but I, th I think you might be done. And if so, thank you. Um, I agree. It's not the easiest thing in the world to talk about, especially I think for a, a lot of people who've been sort of at the anti-imperialist been uh, for quite some time and have been all kinds of tankies and Assadists <laughs> and genocide deniers. Um, I believe it can be kind of <laughs> triggering just to tell the truth. Um, any other questions or things people want to add before I ask you guys uh, the first general question? Cool. Well, the question that I had, actually, I feel like is related to what Jamila was saying, 
um, is that how can we as people with a radical African perspective be more effective at pushing through this message clearly to our people? Thoughts? I'd be really interested into hearing what people have to say, um, primarily because it's been a struggle for me. <laughs> uh, I know I told uh, the comrades this in our in our chat, but um, yesterday my aunt was just like, you know, people like you shouldn't even be in the U.S. And I was like, dang, girl, how you put me out the U.S. Like, <laughs> you know, you know. <laughs> so, so it's um, it's 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 been a struggle. Um, so yeah, I'd be interested to know if people, how people are navigating the conversation with not even just other leftists, but just your regular family. All right, I got uh, dot dot on stack, and then after dot dot, big teal. To speak dot dot, just hold down the mic. gone all right big two you got it hello hi yes we can um, hear you hi, um, yeah great great stuff i really appreciate um hood communist hosts like giving good like historical context about ukraine it's like yeah, the like internal kind of like contradictions of well economic uh, contradictions in Russia, which I realize many people don't know about. So I guess like I'll I'll like I guess by way of answering the question. Um, so I'm I'm currently afraid that I might get kicked out of my housing unit, no housing group me, because there was this um text for. Someone text something about, oh, support Ukraine. So I take a look at the picture and it's to send like, um, I guess like gauze and like medical aid and clothing. And I, I almost freaked out because I'm, I'm freaking out because I have so many questions about who is this person asking us as a group to support? Is it Western Ukrainians? Is it Eastern Ukrainians? And there's no specific. And I know that if I say something, my fear is that people are going to be mad, like that person, or maybe people who align with that, maybe not knowing the, you know, the, like, political specifics in Ukraine. And so what I did in this moment, I just had to ask, like, which part of Ukraine are supporting? And I brought up, like, the Azov Battalion and their role in the 2014 Crimea conflict and who was supporting them and about the Minsk agreement violated and NATO's expansion and the whole things like that and no one has responded back but even if I do get kicked out I am very proud that I did say something only because I'm just asking questions right and I think what I what I I hope I don't know what I wrote is that it got people to think like oh what is the Minsk agreement what does the Berlin have to do with you know the agreement between NATO and and Russia and things like that 
And so I guess right now at the meantime, I guess when I do have meetings, I do try to speak these things, but also let people know where I do get them. I do cite Hood Communists. I do cite Agenda Report. I do cite all these news sources. But also I'm thinking about Naomi Klein's shock doctrine. And I used to like her, and she does a really good job about shock doctrine that was used in Chile's Pinochet era in in Russia as well, and how the oligarchs that people complain about now in the merge out of that context, right? Russia has gone through uh, structural adjustments as well, and you know we complain about inflation in the in the United States percent, and I agree, but in Russia it was 200 percent plus of inflation that economy was screaming and i think people need to like re-study moment in time in the 1990s of russia to figure out where russia really is now and how it's amazing that they managed to even stand up to the eu and nato and so i'll stop there talking a lot but thank you for giving me time to speak i agree with everything that you said and i just want to add um uh, like regarding how we like get our people to see what's happening, how to get them to think critically about the narrative they're hearing, the propaganda. I've been thinking about this a lot because I feel like it's really crucial um, that we figure this out because this is gonna this is gonna keep escalating. The U.S. is not gonna stop intervening. NATO is not gonna try to stop expanding. Um, they're already talking about expansion in the Western Hemisphere. They have military agreements with Colombia. That they're using to attack Venezuela. So we need to figure this out. Um, and one thing that's really, really, really important. Um, especially when what you're saying is the opposite of what people have been forced into believing, is that you have to have a strong ideological foundation. Like you have to be grounded in what you believe and like unshakable in that. And the way that I developed that was being a member of an organization, a revolutionary socialist, anti-imperialist political organization, where I was meant, it was like required for me to engage in a process of like political education to like study history to study the relationships between powers to study colonialism and imperialism and the development of capitalism once i had that foundation it didn't matter what people were trying to make me believe on msnbc um, what people were yelling me about if i understood the history and what was actually happening and the nature of the relationships in the system like my belief became unshakable so i feel like the strong ideological foundation is key because very often I see people um, take a correct position, like for example, saying NATO should not be allowed to be expanded. Uh, Russia was provoked into doing this and then get attacked. And that's what's happening now. Like if you, if you provide any kind of like historical context at this particular moment, if you say like, it's not actually that Putin is the new Genghis Khan, it's actually that like the certain agreements were made, they're not being upheld. And these, this expansion is happening at all only to attack Russia. People will call you a Putin apologist. You like you are expected to preemptively attack Russia and attack Putin before you say anything, and you're expected to not provide any historical context that might make more than one party to blame. So you need that ideological foundation to withstand those attacks. Otherwise, all people do is fold. I've seen it so many times. So that's like one thing on like the personal level. And then the other thing is that I feel like us as revolutionary socialists, as anti-imperialists. Um, people who are opposing this system and trying to build something better. We also need to learn how to talk to people. <laughs> like we can't be, we have to understand that they are constantly steeped in propaganda, constantly being pushed 
to believe things that are not true by a massive apparatus that is inclusive of the mainstream media, all the television channels, all the radio channels, all of like the, 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 the print mass media is working together to enforce a particular point of view alongside the ruling class, alongside the people in political power. Also things like movies and like comedies and stuff are enforcing this line. And so when you understand that people are exposed to that constantly with no other narrative, of course they're going to believe lies and you have to be patient because there was a point in your life when you believe lies too. So we gotta know how to talk to people. We gotta know how to explain this in like simple and accessible terms patiently and like help people understand, like get them that, that historical context um, and do it with humility um, and kindness. So yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. I will say that the conversation with my aunt was it was smooth over, but <laughs> but I I do know that that is the reaction. So I do appreciate Onye raising that that even when you hold that line, you 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 will get attacked. Um, like this reminds me of the years of Syria. I've been called an Assadist. Um, I was last year was a genocide denier for Tigray. So when you have a line, I think that having a, a organizational home i think that really is important i really think that is because if not for black lines for peace um if not for being in community with you all who with who are you know with the aaprp and you know sharing information i'd probably be lost out here too thank you erica and Onye, uh, are there any other people in the the audience that that want to speak on this this idea of how we sort of become more effective at communicating the truth in a society that is overwhelmingly reactionary? Any advice you have, Ajamu? You know, we always look to you. I'm sorry, repeat that again. So yeah, we're asking for advice about how, you know, uh, how us as people with a like a radical uh, African sort of perspective, push through the noise of the reactionary society and reach our people effectively with the truth. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that there's any magic formula. I think, I think Onyesamu laid it out perfectly. Like we just have to learn how to uh, and, and all of us have skills and are good at doing this, but how to make talking about these types of things something people want to do and use creative ways to make people interested. And it's going to take a lot of patience because, you know, we're going up against a massive Goliath machine. But I think that's it. I don't think there's there's anything else to it. We have to just be able to be talking about this stuff when you have when you're around your family and friends, bring it up. What do you think about what's happening in Ukraine? Oh, it doesn't have anything to do with us. Okay, yeah, that's true. It is Europeans, but it does have something to do to us. And why do you think I would say that? And just, you know, I think a really good tool is open-ended questions. Don't don't tell people what they should how they should see it. Just ask them repeated open-ended questions like. Why do you think it's something we should care about? What, what, why do you think you feel that way about it? Something where they can't just say yay or nay, but something where people have to think. And I think that's, that's the best we can do.
Thank you, Ajamu. Something that I've found um, useful in considering how and when I, I open up certain topics is thinking about um, time and location. So I think one thing that a lot of us as socialists, a lot of us as leftists, a lot of us as people who have kind of started the process of peeling back um, the veil of society and really speaking truth about the things that exist in our world is we sometimes, I think, think about ourselves as people who are supposed to, sorry, we think about ourselves as people who are supposed to uh, save every single person that we have a conversation with in that very first conversation that we have. And if I don't convert you the very first time we talk, then either you're stupid or I'm a failure. Um, when in reality, when Onye speaks of patience, I think something we all understand is that sometimes our awakening to certain things happens over multiple touch points. It wasn't just that one conversation. It was that one conversation in combination with a meme I saw on Instagram, in conversation with a thread I saw on Twitter, uh, in combination with something that happened to me when I went to the grocery store that made the light bulb come on. And so I think we should start thinking about ourselves more like touch points. Right. So like if I'm having a conversation with you about this thing, let me think, you know, before I lose my mind and before I go off, what is like the one thing that I can say to you or I can ask you if it's that open, open ended question, if it's this statistic, if it's this uh, story in history that you never heard of that could evolve as you go throughout your day or your week um, or your month and eventually start to make sense for you. Um, and then the other thing is. Uh, time so you know if you're talking to somebody that you know is does this person do well with you know confrontational conversations in public like should you be thinking about how you can get them to the side or do one-on-one -on -one conversations like intimidate that person and would it be better to have the conversation in like a group setting like i think these are all things that we can consider if we're dealing with people who we have a little bit of familiar familiarity with um so anybody else want to add on that that part? Um, yeah, so I wanted to add that, um, so I'm a professional in behavioral analysis. So I am very interested in the behavior patterns that are in colonialism and imperialism. And of course, there isn't much research that's done on it because a lot of the research is funded by uh, white folks and they don't really want it researched. But we know that among folks that are oppressed, there's intergenerational tra trauma that is passed down through the DNA. And, um, you know, it's expressed in many different ways from mental health issues to physical health issues. Um, but also it strengthens the pineal gland, which is uh, a part of our brain where we're able to connect with other living beings. Um, and it, it strengthens to just protect us. And that's why we tend to have better intuition about negative energy and stuff like that. But, you know, there's got to be some elements of psychopathy that have been passed down from what these colonizers, ancestors have done, um, and just the continuous disregard and lack of accountability and how that is passed down. Um, so, you know, I think that, like, narcissism is a very mainstream thing that's a part of our culture at this point because of how, you know, colonialism has kind of taken over a lot of our cultures. Um, and so... And, you know, the patriarchal uh, element, too, plays into the narcissism. But um, just understanding 
uh, like what narcissism is and how to talk to people when they get into those types of behavior patterns. Um, like, you know, a lot of times when you talk to people who don't understand about things like, uh, you know, like NATO, but then also just about racism, white supremacy, all of these things, I'm always, you know, counterattacked with the Darvo um, method, which is what like a lot of, it's a narcissistic type of behavior pattern where it's like deny, attack, reverse victim and offender and just like understanding those behavior patterns and how to talk to people when they get into those mindsets because it's really hard for someone who's empathetic to be in those conversations where you're attacked like that because like um you know morally we don't understand where that's coming from um and dr robinie on youtube um really helps me understand how to have those conversations and um i think it's a really useful tool so that's, I just wanted to share that. Thank you for giving me the time. Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, um, I actually, actually, I'm going to leave it at that question because I feel like it was an effective question and I really like the, um, the engagement that we got there. And so I also just want to sort of emphasize that, you know, even though these conversations are difficult to have and we need to be strategic, I think in organization and thinking about the ways that we have them, we have to have them. We have to raise the contradictions, even though they are uncomfortable. We living in the global north don't have the right to avoid taking these stances and trying to spread this consciousness. So I genuinely uh, wish everybody that's here uh, as a part of this conversation the best of luck as you guys embrace this challenge that hook communists. Um, and our various organizations that represent the organization are placing upon everybody here, which is to take up the challenge, to have the difficult conversation, to talk about why NATO has to be defeated. Um, Erica and Onye have been dropping uh, resources in the Hood Communist chat that we've been using to talk back and forth and, and gain knowledge about um, NATO and how it's trying to sort of drum up uh, a greater catastrophe in Ukraine than it already has. Um, we hope that those resources can be like useful in helping y'all navigate these uh, conversations. And then, of course, uh, you know, uh, we we are always sort of here <laughs> to help provide more resources. If there's something specific that you need to see on the blog, like please email us if there's anything specific that we can have on the blog that would be helpful for helping you to navigate the conversation. We want to know. Um, but the most important thing is that the word gets out about this. Um, and so with that said, today is Hood Communist Thursday. We have new things on the blog. This week, we decided to publish exclusively about NATO. So we have a piece from Jackie Lukman. It's called Could This Be a Russiagate Checkmate? Where Jackie really lays out the case that all these things that we experienced during the last presidential election regarding Russiagate, this idea that black people were being swayed by Russia to vote for Trump, but also swayed by Russia to vote for Bernie. Um, this idea that black people cannot think on our own without being influenced by Russia, how that set the stage for this hostility um, that is created in sort of the modern day context of this uh, crisis and how much easier the public has been manufactured into this boogeyman Russia thing, right? Then there's another one called NATO in Africa, Colonial Violence and Structural White, White Supremacy by um, Jibo Zabukwe uh, from uh, the Black Alliance for Peace um, and also the All African People's Revolutionary Party. And this one is pretty straightforward. It's just a cursory look at 
what NATO has done in Africa. A lot of the things that Ajamu mentioned at the beginning of this, at this conversation, I mentioned in that piece. There's another piece called an analysis on Ukraine on, on Ukraine slash NATO conflict with Russia. And that was written by the organization of uh, people's programs out in Oakland. And it's taking a look at the historical development of NATO also challenges, you know, and raises the question, why should Africans care about this? Uh, so we felt we felt that piece was very important to help uh, spread the word about. And then um, I don't know if y'all are aware coming out of uh african liberation month but hook communist now does this thing called liberation archives well we've kind of always done it but now we're really amping it up where we dig back into the history of speeches of of articles of essays that have been have been written by revolutionaries that come before us um we really just try to push them out in the forefront for people to see and so it's um international working women's month uh which hook communists really want like tries to prioritize and push as an objective of the blog. And we wanted to kick it off with this article that was written by Claudia Jones in 1950. And in the art and in the article, Claudia Jones is making sort of like this argument as to how you cannot have a, a you know, successful struggle for peace in the world that ignores and does not it does not incorporate women into the forefront of that movement. So it's a it's part, you know, uh part of part argument to the world to understand why that is important, but also a call to the women of the world to understand uh, their place in global peace. So I would really recommend everybody check that out. Check out all the stuff on the blog. Um, we have a recap up on the blog for African Liberation Month. Share that. But these are all great resources. And as always, we really appreciate y'all coming and spending the time with us. Uh, that's it for the day. Forward. Forward. Peace, Africans. Peace, y'all. That's a wrap for this week. But be sure to go check out the blog, hoodcommunist.org. We always got new articles on there every Thursday. Good shit, revolutionary shit. Go read that. Take that in. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at hoodcommunist. We got kicked off Twitter for telling the truth. But we still kicking, talking our shit on Instagram. So go follow us and stay up to date with what we got going on. And lastly, if you enjoy what you heard today, if you enjoy what you see on the blog, be sure to share this with your people. Be sure to share it with somebody who you think might appreciate it. You know what I'm saying? Everything we do, we do it because we believe in the potential to transform society and we believe in revolution. So like I said, share that. And lastly, we always encourage our people to join organizations that are fighting for justice, that are fighting for liberation. If we could solve the problems in our society as individuals, we would have did that a long time ago. So yeah, take care of yourselves, man, and we'll see y'all next time. Peace.